This is the Sunday Messages podcast from Cedar Valley Unitarian Universalists in Cedar Falls, Iowa, and I'm your host, Kat Bean Hansen. Welcome. We're glad you're here. This week's message was originally given on February 13th, 2022. Pastor Emma Peterson delivers her message, Love, Sweet Love, How the Romantic Relationship Became the Ultimate Goal and how that harms us. Tomorrow, February 14th, is Valentine's Day. I love this holiday so much, mostly because I love love in all its forms. Be it romantic, filial, or divine, I consider the human ability to express and receive love to be one of life's greatest gifts. I also readily admit that I love the kitschy aesthetic of Valentine's Day. Red paper hearts, heart-shaped boxes of chocolates, fluffy teddy bears, and sweet love notes. I love it all, and I love that the day falls in the month of February, when we're all a little desperate for some passion and fire. It's the perfect time of year for a red-hot holiday, one that reminds us of the fires that burn inside of us and infuses some color into a cold and colorless world. But despite my love of this holiday and much of what it represents, I can't help but feel a little annoyed about the cultural implications of the day. Surprisingly enough, I'm not talking about capitalism. (laughs) I'm not talking about commercialism and consumerism, not today, probably next week. I'm talking about the way our culture, specifically white heterosexual American culture, continues to uphold a romantic ideal of cis-hetero monogamy. The way partnered, specifically married couples, are afforded an implicit respect and an inordinate amount of perks from the federal government, the way that single folks just aren't. This elevated social status is especially true for women. Several years ago, I read an article comparing women's experiences when they shared their career advancements with their friends and family versus when they shared the news of an engagement. Overwhelmingly, women received more positive attention for getting married than they did for advancing their career. And all of them reported a sense of increasing social status following their marriages. This cultural ideal extends to acceptable family structures too. We continue to uphold the married two-parent household as the only truly acceptable way to be a family even though that particular family structure hasn't been the norm for decades and only was the norm for a blip in American history. Valentine's Day is wonderful because it's warm and fuzzy and full of chocolate, but I am concerned about the way the holiday perpetuates harmful relational ideals and diminishes less traditional relational arrangements. Today, I'd like to unpack how these cultural ideals cause us harm, 
and who these ideals exclude or diminish within our society. This is not an attempt to declare we've all got it wrong when it comes to monogamy, remember the platinum rule, rather a reminder that what works for some of us might not work for all of us, and an opportunity to examine our own personal biases when it comes to encountering folks who have chosen a different lifestyle that many of us may consider than many of us may consider normal or socially acceptable. I believe part of the problem with monogamy begins when we idealize our partner and determine that they and they alone will be capable of meeting our every need for the rest of our lives. It is an inordinate amount of pressure to put on even the most devoted, committed person, and it frankly isn't realistic. When we believe our partner is responsible for meeting all of our needs, be they physical, emotional, spiritual, intellectual, and material, and that we in return are responsible for theirs, we set ourselves up for disappointment. Further, we have put considerable emphasis on fidelity as foundational in maintaining long-term relationships, and it has engendered culturally acceptable gray area behavior like possessiveness, jealousy, and isolation. Infidelity remains, year after year, the single most likely reason for breakups and divorces. Infidelity destroys relationships primarily because it destroys the trust, real or imagined, that we have put in our partners. If you are interested in learning more about this, I strongly recommend Esther Perel's podcast, Where Should We Begin? Perel is a couples therapist, and each podcast episode features a different couple exploring their relationship challenges many of which center around the harm resulting from infidelity. Infidelity betrays not only our cultural ideals of romantic love, but it can also fully destabilize our own sense of self-worth. Perel takes a pragmatic approach to monogamy, recognizing it may be culturally compulsive, but not necessarily suitable for everybody. But nevertheless, Perel validates how devastating infidelity can be to a person's sense of self-worth and their trust in their partner. I've listened to hours of her podcast and often find myself returning to my original thought. Maybe lifelong monogamy isn't the healthiest relationship model for everybody. Please hear me loud and clear when I say that I am not proclaiming that all of us abandon monogamous relationships to try out polyamory because monogamy is unrealistic. <laughs> Do not misunderstand me. What I am saying is that many people in ethically non-monogamous relationships, ethically non-monogamous meaning partners are free to pursue romantic or sexual relationships in addition to with the consent of their partner, have spent years unpacking how and why monogamy can become toxic and have worked to create romantic arrangements free from the pitfalls monogamy can engender, specifically jealousy, possessiveness, and unrealistic expectations and pressure. Primarily, non-monogamous or polyamorous couples emphasize the necessity of openness and transparency in their relationships resisting the secrecy and fear 
that can crop up in exclusive partnerships when we insist on the fairly unreasonable lifelong expectation of exclusivity or else. I think monogamy can do us a disservice when it comes to our basic need for intimacy. I'm defining intimacy here far beyond sex. I'm talking about physical touch, like holding hands, hugging and cuddling, and emotional intimacy, like comforting someone who is grieving or the remarkable feeling of being deeply understood by another person. I myself am a product of the unbelievably harmful and abusive indoctrination of the purity culture of the 90s and early 2000s. I fortunately escaped the worst of it, but I cannot deny that the sexual education I received from my parents was steeped in shame and fear, and that other models of healthy sexual behavior were deeply warped by the era of abstinence-only sex education in which I was raised. I'll never forget a sex ed class I attended with my Methodist youth group that began when the teacher passed around a cup and asked us all to spit in it. Yeah, when we had all filled our cup with spit, the teacher then held it up and asked if any of us would like to drink it. Of course, we all declined. And then she went on to make the analogy that this cup of communal spit was exactly like a woman who had chosen to have multiple sexual partners before marriage. Dirty, disgusting, and not desirable to anybody. Note, she said woman, not person or man. Yeah, it really screwed me up. <laughs> There's a, lot of, there's a lot of response coming from the congregation here this morning. This intense fear that any kind of sexual intimacy made me dirty and bad spread out into all other areas of my intimate life, short-circuiting my brain in a way that I equated all touch with sex, which led to some deeply unrealistic expectations of my future partners and meant I missed out on the pleasure of physical affection with my friends. In an, in an article entitled, Why Don't We Kiss Our Friends More? for the website Them, Garrett Schlichty unpacks the way society has sexualized all touch, resulting in the cultural indoctrination that all touch, whether it be a hug, a kiss in greeting, or a cuddle on the couch, must mean the person is expressing sexual feelings. We have relegated physical touch to the exclusive romantic relationship, a privilege many of us don't even have access to. This stubborn link between physical affection and sex ultimately harms and isolates all of us, especially those of us who are unpartnered and cannot access non-sexual intimacy. Pandemic life has only exacerbated this problem. Amongst many of my queer friends, consensual physical touch is a beautiful and essential part of our relationships. Physical touch is a necessity for human beings. The UUA, Our Whole Lives Sexual Education Program, emphasizes the dangers of skin hunger in which human beings deprived of touch experience increased levels of depression and suicidality, addiction, and antisocial behaviors. 
We know this to be scientifically true. And yet for many of us, holding our friend's hand as we walk down the street or cuddling up on the couch during a movie night would feel inappropriate. It doesn't surprise me that queer folks are the ones pioneering consensual, physically intimate friendships, especially because queer folks are often shamed for our natural desires in the first place. It is revolutionary for platonic friends to express physical affection in our society, despite our awareness that a lack of touch can harm us. Schlichte writes, the whole point of being gay is that we get to make our own rules. We get to hug and kiss and touch our friends as long as they want us to and erase the lines, not just blur them. So much of the joy of queer culture comes from the liberation of releasing ourselves from the rigid relational expectations of wider society. I'm blessed to be partnered with a person who values physical affection with friends and who wouldn't respond with jealousy or fear if I hug a friend for a long time in greeting and I won't respond with jealousy and fear if they visit a friend and cuddle with each other while catching up. I've been in other relationships where this was not the case, one in particular, and the isolation I experienced damaged me significantly. Physical touch is an essential component of healthy functioning for many of us, though not for all of us. And I think it would be a healthy thing for our society to release the proverbial vice grip between physical intimacy and sexual intimacy. Now is the part in my sermon when I loudly proclaim the importance of consent. One of the things pandemic life has reinforced in all of us is the importance of asking for permission before touching someone else and not taking it personally if they decline. Ethical non-monogamy would not be ethical at all if consent wasn't foundational to the practice. And frankly, there isn't a single relationship arrangement, friends, romantic partners, siblings, coworkers, what have you, that shouldn't be formed with consent at the forefront. If you want to, to practice more physical affection in your friendships, be mindful of any dynamics that might provoke an imbalance of power and autonomy within the relationship. If you're the boss, for example, it probably isn't a good idea to start regularly hugging your employees because some of them might feel like they can't say no. Be aware of gender dynamics or past trauma that might make a person decline physical affection. If something feels like it's crossing a boundary, it probably is, and it's time to reassess. Learn to separate societal indoctrination from the very real gut signals we all have when it comes to safe touch and unsafe touch. I am encouraging platonic intimacy that is grounded in safety and consent. Anything that doesn't place those two things at the forefront could cause irreparable harm. By all means, hug your friends, kiss when you greet each other, spoon each other in bed if that feels good, but always ask permission first. I think a lot about the way society values certain relationships and how that marginalizes so many of us. 
I think a lot about it within our own beloved community. We have many members of the congregation who have been married for decades. We celebrate their anniversaries while enthusiastically asking what the secret is to prolonged matrimony. I am by no means suggesting that we don't celebrate those things. They are very much worth being celebrated. I am instead reminding us of our implicit biases and who we might be leaving out when we uphold these particular relationships. Who might we be marginalizing in our own well-meaning celebrations of marriage and traditional family structures? Many of you know that I myself am divorced. For me, my divorce was deeply liberating, and not only because it allowed me to finally begin living publicly as a queer lesbian. Imagine if we threw divorce parties in the same way we threw anniversary parties. Imagine if the end of relationships, whether through divorce or death, didn't still in 2022 often relegate people to isolation on the outskirts of polite society. Perhaps we all could speak with a little more awareness and sensitivity instead of automatically coming from a place of cultural indoctrination that upholds certain kinds of relationships, the heterosexual one partner kinds above others, the intentionally single, divorced or non-monogamous kinds. Perhaps we could actively work to recognize all sorts of non-traditional partner and family arrangements as long as they are grounded in safety and consent, as valid and good. Perhaps we could even expand beyond the two-partner system to acknowledge the ways the nuclear family might not actually be the healthiest or best arrangement there is for everybody. I plan to preach on how the nuclear family came to be endorsed as the only acceptable family structure in a few months, but I thought we would start with the romantic relationship. We are Unitarian Universalists. We pride ourselves on our open minds and our open hearts. But that doesn't mean that we don't get mired down in what society has taught us is singularly right, good, and acceptable. On this Valentine's Day, I encourage you to celebrate love in all forms. Because ultimately, our love for one another is the only thing that can heal this broken-hearted world. May it be so because we make it so. Amen and blessed be. This has been the Sunday Messages podcast from Cedar Valley Unitarian Universalists. The music is by Nathan Moore. If you want to learn more about the CVUU, visit our website at www.cedarvalleyuu.org. And you can also find us on Facebook or Instagram at Cedar Valley UU. We welcome visitors to attend our online services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Central Time. If you'd like to learn more about joining us for a service, send us an email at cvuupodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.